This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Trent? We're sitting here with Trent Jacobs from SBE Journal of Petroleum Technology. What's going on, Trent? Thanks for joining us, bud. Thanks for having me. What's going on, baby powder? <laughs> baby, baby powder McClellan. <laughs> so for everybody listening, I was telling Jake that I ran out of deodorant this morning and I had to pick up some from the gas station and it was baby powder. So I smell interesting this morning, to say the least. <laughs> so Trent, we first met, how do we first meet? I think we met through LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, so it was through so LinkedIn. I think we met at our old office at WeWork. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So we were fascinated with your story, especially with you know the fact that you are kind of in the same segment that we're in, trying to bridge this gap between technology and oil and gas. That's, that's your entire job. So if there's anybody who knows more about this than we do, it's you. And so we were like, we got to get Trent on the, sh- on the show. Let's talk about everything that he sees, all the emerging technologies, yeah, we, what is hyped, what is not hyped, all that kind of stuff. We mentioned that he's at the Journal of Petroleum Technology. So you're an editor there, helping put out that content to kind of highlight what's going on in the oil and gas tech world. So tell us a little bit about what you do at SPE. Yeah, so the SBE Society of Petroleum Engineers, it's the largest professional organization in the uh, oil and gas business and more than 70,000 professional members worldwide. So what the organization really serves is for a uh, a place for technical information to be shared and disseminated widely and, and mm-hmm. not just for the industry, but also for the public so that people can sort of appreciate all that goes into the business from a engineering and technology level. And then JPT is sort of the, a little bit of like the storefront of that. So we, we cover, we get into the weeds on technical things and we have a lot of editors who are volunteer engineers who, who help do that. And then me and a, a small cast of, of characters, we try to cover the business more from a, I guess you could consider a, a news angle. And we like to just sort of take topics and then unwrap them or, or unpackage them for the masses. And so our my extreme focus is on emerging tech. And as you can imagine, that's really started to bleed into all the digital oh, yeah. uh, explosion of, of technology that we're seeing. Awesome. So before we dive into like everything that you guys are doing, and obviously we could probably have a billion different conversations about tech. How did you, how did you end up here? Are you, are you an engineer by trade? Or are you just a journalist? How'd you, how'd you find oil and gas? Yeah, I'm always flattered when I get asked if I'm an engineer. So no, <laughs> uh, the uh, furthest thing from the, from the truth there. Now I, I was a, a traditional journalist for at least the past uh, 10 years or more and rose through the ranks from a, a freelance guy and then came to a newspaper in East Texas actually and started reading about this thing called the Eagle for shale. And uh, I grew up here in Houston. My dad was in the business. My great-grandfather was drilling wells 100 years ago and or somewhere around there. And I just told my wife, I said, you know, if this thing works in Texas, uh, we, we should move to Houston. So I came here, came back home to Houston and got a job with an offshore service company who actually also had a production company within it okay. called Helix Energy Solutions. And for two and a half years, I came in and got to learn a lot about the business, especially subsea and offshore and actually came in right after Macondo because that company was directly involved with containing mm. the spill. Okay. And I got brought in to help formulate the public relations campaign of the f- world's first subsea oil spill containment system okay. uh, that actually got people back to drilling during the yeah. moratorium. So that was critical. And then, you know, I wanted to sort of get back into the, my journalism role and combine what I'd learned about the industry. And I had a home at SBE. So I've been essentially with the SBE for about five years. Okay doing what I do now. That's really interesting. What does that look like 
crafting a PR campaign very, you know, during very volatile times, I'd say, <laughs> in offshore oil and gas. That's got to be quite the challenge. I mean, I guess I was, I, you know, as, as I was reading about Macondo, like a lot of people from home and watching what was happening on the news, by the time I got to, to Helix, the spill had been contained and the relief wells had been drilled. So a lot of the action was over, but getting the industry back to business required what had never been thought of or put into action, which was how do we stop a blowout at 5,000 feet below the waves? Mm-hmm. And so it was really fun and exciting to work with all the engineers and sort of document for the company and for the external audience, what was really going into that. And it was just kind of a marvel of engineering how these guys took existing components and reassembled them to something that could stop just a, you know insanely powerful blowout. Yeah. And uh, the majors had their solution. And my company at the time, we had developed the solution that all the independents had signed up for. So essentially, it was a, it was a big insurance policy. You had to have this. So it felt really good to be part of a solution, and especially the fact that it was a technological solution. You know, it's a shame mm-hmm. that, that we didn't have it before the yeah. accident, but now there's a you know a lot we we know how to stop these things, and thankfully both of the subsea containment systems they never had to be you know fully deployed. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so it was a great honor to be part of that, and and from that point on, I think I was just hooked on oil and gas technology. It's exciting times. You know, I think the the biggest tragedies, such as like you know incidents like that, and then the downturn. I think that really breeds the most innovation. I think it brings out the best in people, especially in this industry. Oh yeah, definitely. I, and I, we were we were talking about this earlier, but you know, there's been a lot of call for innovation starting you know 2000. 14 when the yeah. prices start to crash. And at the beginning, we didn't really know what that looked like. It was just sort of a call from the executives and the top engineers in the business from the podium at different shows and editorials that they were writing. And we know, though, that in the 80s and the, the downturn that bled, started in the 80s and bled into the 90s, that we saw a lot, a lot of commercialization of emerging technologies. You know, logging while drilling is a, is a good example. Hydraulic fracturing is, is it probably mm-hmm. even better one. And I think we are starting to see those pieces come together four years after the most recent downturn, which you know most people argue is still continuing. Yeah. So over the last five years, you said so you've been with SPD for five years, right? Yeah. Okay. Over the last five years covering technology, what do you think is some of the biggest takeaways that you've seen? What have you seen change? Because I'm right there in that same ballpark, right? About five years with, with the first company that we started, GDSware, in oil and gas. And I'll tell you that it's extremely different culturally than it was five years ago, which is really, really hard to believe. There's still a lot of unique challenges like we were talking before we went on the mic, especially about adoption of actual technology. I believe just from seeing it firsthand that there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of conversations being had. I still feel like adoption is not quite where it needs to be. And I think once we get to that point, I think we're going to see more entrepreneurs making the jump into building newer technologies in this space. But that really has to kind of start with you know the, the buyers, the ENPs, the service companies, whoever it is that's actually buying the technology. But from, from your experience, what have you seen? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I think that from a, a high level, one of the most interesting things I've seen is just the the complexity of shale in particular, not to leave out the other 94% of production worldwide, which is conventional, but but within shale, we've just seen every year the philosophies change. And so there's been this evolution of dealing with the uncertainties and the complexities of these formations. And that's just driven a lot, a lot of innovation. And then then you, you move away from sort of those evolving techniques and then you get into this advanced analytics and artificial intelligence world and machine learning and it's a whole new ball game. And so we're starting to see that 
the, the data science jargon it intertwined with oil and gas jargon. Now, to your point about, you know, where are we now kind of thing, I, it's always hard and maybe impossible to see, like, what the industry is really being, you know, accepting at this point. But the call came from executives, for the, especially for the majors, you know, four years ago. We have to invest in these technologies. So there's a lot of top-down philosophical changes happening. And now you're starting to see that that's, that's formulating. But in a big organization, change takes, you know, an excruciatingly long time sometimes. And, but we're getting there. And I think you're starting to see more and more examples come out where operators like Shell or we were talking about Equinor making, you know, pretty sizable investments. Yeah. and mm-hmm. commitments to to working with some of these smaller companies, these startups that are coming with these machine learning tools. So I think, you know, I'm, it's kind of exciting to me, and we've talked about this before, like what's it going to look like in five years? And I think right now there's a, there's a lot of talk going on from the podium from both operator service companies and, and these startups. And now, like from here on for, for the next five, ten years, I think we're going to see – the dust settle and find out who the winners are and who the losers might be. And we're going to see a lot more implementation because, you know, Frank, as, as it was put to me a while ago, and I said this to other people, the, from the major EMPs, playtime is over. Mm-hmm. They've, they've been, you know, dabbling and doing bake-offs with different startups for three or four years. Now they actually have to start implementing and showing that these things can turn a profit. Yeah, so the pressure's the next, on. I think the next 10 years is going to be extremely exciting. And one thing that's interesting, I've been quoting this, this, study a lot that we've seen from McKinsey because they pulled a bunch of EMPs and over 50% of the respondents said that it's not a matter of these companies don't want to use big data analytics. It's that they don't have the people inside internally. They don't have the data scientists, those types to use that data. So it's not really, I think we're starting to see that, that shift where companies are wanting to start implementing this technology but we, we, there's so many moving parts that everything has to be connected. You know, you can't just hop in and start running analytics and looking at big data, you know, machine learning, all these, all these buzzwords. You know, there has to be steps of progression, and we have, a, we have a lot of hurdles to get over to get to that point. But, I mean, this is not to be like a shameless plug or anything, but this is the exact problem that like WellHub is fixing. Is This is what we've seen with newer technologies that are coming out there. Every, every single new technology that you're implementing internally is going to have its own database. And as you have more and more databases, you have more and more deep data silos. And so the problem becomes it's just plain old access to data. You know, 97% of the data that's collected today by the NPs is not used. That's absolutely astounding. And it's because 80% of the time that engineers, accountants, other employees at these EMPs are spending all the time on data aggregation and preparation. It's like, and it's crazy because this has been talked about for, obviously I haven't been in the industry for 20 years, but I've been talking to other people and other conferences are like, this has been the same problem since the very beginning and nobody's ever really addressed it. And so it's a, it's a great opportunity for us, obviously, you know, we're kind of curious to see exactly how things are going to go. The, I think the, the biggest problem that we see and one of the biggest barriers, I mean, especially for us would be, I think a lot of companies are, are they talk, but they don't necessarily walk whenever it comes to say you have a new startup and they show that they have Pretty amazing technology, right? Nobody wants to be your first pilot test. Nobody wants to be your guinea pig, right? That's starting to change. But I would still, it's a pretty overwhelming that most companies don't want to be the first one to have to even deal with that. They want somebody else to kind of eat the cost on it, eat the time on it. And then once you've got a white paper showing that, oh, maybe this works well, then maybe we'll, we'll think about actually implementing it. And so I think we need to get more and more as an industry, we need to become more and more early adopters. And I understand, trust me, this industry is extremely risk adverse. You know, like Mark LaCour says on Oil and Gas this week all the time, you know, whenever you change stuff and, and it doesn't go well, people die in this industry. And that's true. Not necessarily true when it comes to data, right? It's really hard for us to, I mean, 
it's really hard from a data standpoint for anything to be worse than it possibly is now. Yeah. So why not take some risk and see what, see the, the kind of stuff that you can break and see what you can come out on the other side with it. Yeah, no, I think you raised a great point. I mean, the, the whole nobody wants to be the first customer line has been out there. It, it totally predates big data technology. And, you know, used to, you know, it, it's a reflection of, like you said, the risk adverseness, the the conservative nature, and just the high cost of, yeah. of trying to put something down a hole. Now, when you're trying to take a data feed and see if you can manipulate it and get some actionable insights out of it, as they say, yeah, the, you know, the risk is a lot lower. So I, I think, though, that, you know, you still have some internal barriers because we're, this is going to require a shift of what we what we think of as the IT and OT departments are seeing a big merging or blending of these roles. And so culturally, this isn't a problem of technology right now as much as it is having the industry wrap its mind around the problem. And I know that the, the industry, there's there's a camp, a very well-established camp that will say, we've been doing big data for decades. And, you know, you've been, the industry has been collecting a lot of data for a long time. Uh, that's why we're able to go back and look at logs from, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. And the mm-hmm. same thing with cores. But yeah, obviously, you know, what we're talking about today and trying to get structured data that you can actually run sophisticated analytics over, that's, you know, there's a lot of cleanup. Years, from what I've heard, years of oh, data yeah. cleanup that, that yeah. has to happen to make this stuff. So in a, in a lot of cases, companies are, are going kind of back to square one. Like, how do we assure that we're getting consistently quality data and that it's in a right format? So mm-hmm. I was just on the phone with a startup yesterday, and we were talking about how often or how common it is to get your completions report from a frac job in a PDF form. And now there's nothing wrong with the PDF exactly, but it just, it, it's a digital. It can integrate into anything. Right. It's a digital <laughs> manifestation of a piece of paper, right? Yeah. And so we're, it's unstructured data. Well, so is, how the hell are you anything Everybody wants to talk about machine learning, artificial intelligence. And trust me, and I'm a huge proponent for it. But the problem in oil and gas is that we don't have clean data. If you're feeding shit into the machine, you're going to get shit out. And that's, so we had these very big, even uh, talking to one of our friends that has a, artificial intelligence startup. They've got this really good technology, but one of the problems that they run into is that a lot of the documents that they that they scan are still in paper format. You know, they're still in in a file cabinet somewhere in a back room. And there's people making and, a fortune of, of scanning that scanning, data. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, yeah. Right as, 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 as a service, as least. a service, yeah. yeah. I want no part of that. That's very labor intensive. But you know, they go up to these companies and the company's like, oh yeah, we want to use your technology. And they're like, oh wait, you mean that we have to have digital copies of those documents for you to run this? And, and then those companies are like, well, we're not in the business of scanning documents. Find somebody to scan your documents yeah. for you first. <laughs> and then they never find somebody and the whole project gets kanked. And then yeah, so you have, done. you know, you, you, even companies think that they're being forward thinking and, you know, they have, oh, well, we've got digital copies and PDF. Like, yeah, but you can't extract that data from a PDF and, and, We've seen this with companies like Reservoir Data Systems with their frac data. You know, they've they've expressed this like, yeah, we're pulling all this great data from frac jobs, but there's nowhere for it to go. And mm-hmm. there's no way for it to be utilized in its current form. So these EMPs don't see the true value in having that data because they don't know how to utilize it properly. So that's something that's just very interesting. And then, you know, going back to talking about the the adoption of technology. You know, at the events, at the conferences that we see, we see, you know, it coming from top down, you know, C-level personnel talking about transforming digitally and innovating. But one good point that Trent brought up before we got on the microphone is that your engineers that are actually in the trenches, you know, very focused on daily operations, 
sometimes they don't get as much exposure to the new technology. And if you go and mention a startup, they have no clue what you're talking about because, I mean, they've got a lot on their plate. They're having to worry about, you know, their drill, their, their well that's gone to shit out in the Permian. You know, they're, they're stuck out in the sprayberry. They have to worry about those day to day things. So it's hard for them to kind of get immersed into the new technology innovation because they have to worry about their current workloads. So what are some of the, any of your engineers that are members, is that something that they express? What are you guys saying with, with engineers on that front? You know, one, one thing I always like to bring up when this in this line of conversation is that, you know, changing processes really comes down to changing careers, especially in engineering, which is such a process workflow, you know, heavy business. And so for a lot of the uh, the top down style stuff, you know, you're basically saying that we're going to we're going to come in here and revolutionize the business, but you're you're going to the the people on the front lines are the ones who are going to be impacted very heavily. So I want to say that there's necessarily resistance, but we have to bridge the the communication, the lines of communication into those those the rank and file. I think, you know, SBE and and my magazine JPT, we we sort of serve one, you know, cog of that big wheel mm-hmm. um, where you know, get to know, we want you to know these companies exist, what they're working on. We're not placing bets or saying who, who's winning and losing, but we are wanting to show you that, that you know, the people are, are becoming that first guinea pig. And yeah. I think that's, that's just a, a critical thing to, for people to get past. But I, I think that engineers, especially the, the youngest generation of engineers, which we've, you know, you can't talk about this without mentioning the great crew change. Yeah. We, we lost an insane amount of talent at the top level of this business that retired or suffered from layoffs. And now you have people who are in their mid thirties managing AFEs for billion dollar taking, projects, yeah, taking or, senior level positions. We talk about this all the right. time. Right. And I mean, yeah. it's, and it's, you know, we're, you know, all of us kind of fit into the millennial bucket uh, mm-hmm. as we, as we talk. So, so it's, it's nice to see that like we're going from being like the kids to, you know, managers and, and that feels good to watch that happen. And I think that that generational shift though is going to, is going to really be good for the industry because of the embrace of technology. I mean, just think about, you know, teaching your, your, showing your dad how an app worked on your iPhone yeah. and, and that kind of so stuff. So there's some pros and cons to this. We talk about this all the time. And pros, younger generation is very willing to accept new technology and explore new things. I've seen this firsthand. I've been out on, on jobs in West they're, Texas. They're demanding it now. Yeah, I've seen, I've been out on jobs mm-hmm. in West Texas where you have five intern engineers out there, you know, still currently going to school for petroleum engineering. And they're looking at how something's being done and essentially saying, hey, why the hell are we still doing it like this? Is there not a software for that? You know, they're already asking those questions. And you think about it, like us millennials, you know, when I graduated high school in 2008, the first iPhone had just came out. And so for a, a good portion of my life, I've been used to having that technology in my hand where I have seamless apps that can be ran to do things. So just imagine these, these younger kids that are, you know, about to come out of school, they're very deep into technology and they expect it. Now on the flip side, that was a pro. The con is that we have to gather all this wisdom and knowledge from the older generation and somehow bridge that gap before they're out of the workforce because oil and gas is extremely complicated. I mean, just think about what we do drilling wells. It's just, I mean, it's mind blowing. It's a test of physics and there's so much tribe knowledge that we risk losing if we don't capture all of that. So that's another, that's another very, you know, yes, technology is great. I mean, I'm a huge supporter proponent for it, but we have to be able to capture 
you know, the, the intelligence and wisdom from the older generation to make sure that we're still doing it efficiently and doing it right. And, so. and you have to do that while allowing your most senior experienced staff to pretty much do what they have been trained to do for the last 20 years. The same, you know, you have to, you, you can't come in here and say, we're going to shove this analytics software down your throat. Yeah. And, you know, you, you've been trained on one seismic interpretation software for 25 years and you're the master of it in, yeah. within the organization, but we're ripping that out, out of your hands. Yeah. Not to you know go back to, you know, a story, but I just, Put it on our website today, in fact, which was talking about a, a new seismic software company that is going to allow experienced users of legacy interpretation software to keep using that software within this new environment. So it's a bridge oh, wow. to the future. So they've taken that approach where we're going to say, you know, we're going to try to make everybody happy. We want the younger generation who wants to use machine learning based seismic interpretations, we're there for them. The guys who want to go tinker around with it with the uh, big time legacy software platforms, we provide that ability too. And so so that's that's one area. And mm-hmm. then on the knowledge sharing, I mean, I don't think anybody has figured that out yet, but I am, you know, talking to some companies, including one that's based out in California, and they're essentially reinventing what was introduced in the 70s called expert systems. So this is the idea where you basically a human trains a computer to do what he's been doing or she's been doing for years. And then when somebody new comes in, they want to ask a question from that human expert, but that human expert's left the business maybe or too busy. They can just ask the computer. And so essentially we're trying to sort of encode people's uh, human knowledge. Yeah, the their, yeah, yeah, their workflows, their their knowledge, their heuristics, and also those, like you said, that tribal knowledge, mm-hmm. those little tips and tricks that you only get from working an asset for 20 years. Yeah. So so that's unproven, but it's it's coming. And mm-hmm. uh, actually, BP is a big believer in this and gave this this startup $20 million to, oh, prove, wow. to prove if you can Very cool. create a new AI expert system. Very cool. Yeah, Jake and I, we were actually at one of the, the major companies last month. And we were in there talking about software with some of their IT team, and they expressed to us, they said, we have a very big cultural challenge where, you know, one of the major companies, it's not as easy as it is for some of the smaller independents because you can't just come in and displace all the legacy systems that they've been using. And so, I mean, they expressed that to us that, yeah, we can bring in new software, but we still have to get our current employees to be accepting of it. And that, that's another aspect. And that's really... I'm sure that's a big task, you know, talking about the, the, the seismic startup, being able to do that, build out a a program where, hey, look, if you want to use our new machine learning, you can. But if you just want to piggyback off of the old legacy systems, but if that's possible, that's a great solution. Yeah, so. you, like I said, you got to make everybody you got to make everybody happy to some extent at this point in time. And all of these systems are meant to introduce great change. All this new technology, how do you manage that culturally? This is a human problem, so you can't just solve this with technology now. Now you have to have a lot of, you know, sort of come to Jesus moments internally and realize that uh, to embrace this stuff, you do have to embrace a great deal of change. So some companies are excelling at that and others are running into into roadblocks. I mean, especially if you look at what's happening with some of the field technologies that are essentially using cameras and microphones and computer vision algorithms to do what a field operator has been doing forever, which is going out and visually inspecting a well site. You know, there's a number of people competing in this space. The biggest hangup are field operation offices. 
Yeah. Um, and so, and then, you know, you can say, well, can't corporate just tell those guys what to do? No, <laughs> no, they can't. So we, we always so, say this, you got, you got Bubba out in the field. Yeah. yeah, you, know, yeah. you know, I was Bubba out in the field, so I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to say that, but it is the, the adoption from the field, the field offices and the, the personnel out in the field. You know, we, we've seen startups that always try to have a, a mobile app and I'm like, that's, it's hard to push technology that uses a mobile app because everyone's you know, if you're out in field operations, you're covered in oil, mud, dope, whatever it might be. Everybody's just got their tally book. And I just can't see displacing the tally book to enter in data into a mobile app. So you got to, there's just so many different intricacies that you have to navigate. You have like around. the cultural barriers, but you, you have to think about, you have to remove all barriers. If it takes, here's a, here's a good, a good analogy. When I was in the Marine Corps, I was the uh, shipping and receiving chief for communications maintenance, right? And we went through a huge transformation. This was about two years in where everything that we done was on, on, on paper, right? So we'd have a service request. They would literally, some shop would bring it to us. It would be all on paper. We'd have it all written down. We'd accept it. You have like six carbon copies, right? Everybody gets their own copy. And then we take that and we pass it on. So that's how all maintenance in the Marine Corps was done until like, I don't know, 2011. <laughs> um, we switched to an Oracle-based system. Right. And so everything was input on the computer. We were capturing all this information. Everything sounded grand. The problem was that it took us three to four times longer to use this system than it did to do the paper. So from a productivity and efficiency standpoint, yes, we're capturing the values, but at what cost? Right. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with oil and gas. You can't introduce a technology that's going to take somebody significantly longer to input the information. If it doesn't make them more productive or more efficient in what they're doing daily, there's no point. It doesn't matter if we're digitizing it or not, right? So you got to keep that in mind. So if you're looking to bring something to, to market, make sure that you're making people more productive, more efficient with your think, And think about the end user and, you know, getting to your, the, the sort of, the, we, we can't help but keep going back to sort of iPhone comparisons we talk about because it is a transformative or, or transformative technology in itself. Mm -hmm. But we also have to realize that we've, we've sort of been spoiled as consumers of uh, what Silicon Valley has given all of us. And we've gotten sleek UIs, user yeah. interfaces, yeah. great user experiences generally. And that's uh, what everybody's demanding now. Right. And just tons of, tons of variety. And, mm -hmm. and you can, there's something for everybody so we can all pick and choose. Yeah. Well, imagine if, you know, you, you had your iPhone, you went to the AT&T store and then he said, okay, these are your five apps. You know, you're going to use these <laughs> yeah. forever. And so the end users, the frontline users, whether they're field techs, field operators, or reservoir engineers, you know, here in the, in the offices in Houston, you know, they need to be paid attention to. And Definitely. if, and if this, and if a venture group is going to buy into a new technology, part of their due diligence is to make sure that they can go and test this with teams and make sure that they'll, they'll buy in. Otherwise you have these big million dollar rollouts and it, and it backfires on you because you end up just taking off, you know, the people that are actually supposed to use this stuff. And yeah. So that, that point about taking longer, that's, you know, there's about five killers or maybe, maybe more. There's a long list of killers, but yeah, if this one doesn't improve my workflow, like if I don't like it, I'm going to find every way to not mm -hmm. use it. We always hear about this on the rig. Like if you put something new on a rig and, and the guys on the rig don't like it the next day, it might, it might end up broken. Yeah. You know? So we, we've heard that story a lot. I mean, I think it's, you know, and it's a, it's a fun oil field antidote, yeah. but yeah, that's, that, that, that teaches the lesson that this industry, even though commands can come from top down, this is a whole ecosystem in the oil and gas world of how you get people to buy into new technology. It's not mm -hmm. just about talk. It's about making, making people's lives better. And, th and those guys are the ones who are going to be pressing the button on the phone app. Yep, yeah. exactly. So Trent, 
got to ask you, what technology are you more most excited about? Is it big data, machine learning? Is it any blockchain applications, drones, robotics? What what gets you excited to see implemented within oil and gas in the next several years? I guess, you know, all of the above is exciting. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, where I'm really trying to, to focus in right now is what we're talking about, which is implementation. What are the tools that people are actually investing in big time with big money and trying to get their companies to use on a large scale? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think you guys had talked about this in another podcast, but Equinor and Ambient have uh, signed a large contract yeah. that, that's going to start around 400 wells probably and, and could scale up to 800 wells with a machine learning edge device that will process optimization of set points of mm -hmm. pump jacks on site. Ambient's is, great technology. Level. Right, which is, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it sounds simple. Like, yeah, just put a little computer out, you know, <laughs> there and, and, and tell this giant $600,000 machine what to do. Like, why wouldn't you do that? But if you know, you know, just a scintilla of, of the history's industry with field operations, you know, that's actually a big breakthrough. It so, is. So those things, I think artificial lift might be the, the lowest hanging fruit for the, the change that's about to come. Mm -hmm. And if you can automate these machines and, and we, and, and Ambient it's not alone. There's another company called Kelvin, which has made news recently. They are working with BP and they've reduced, and it's on their, their focus for the initial part of their program is on plunger lift, which is a, you know, minority share of the artificial lift market. I think it might, you know, don't quote me on this too much, but I think it might be like 6% of the global market. But they've essentially shown that an algorithm and a, and a hardened computing device out in the field can do better than your field technician force. Mm -hmm. um, they and they will always they will always be there right next to the well and trying to make it work better. It's a good use case, like especially for Ambient. You know, when I first met them, it was up at a G Denver Energy Tech Showcase, mm -hmm. and I was looking at their software, and I was like, "Oh shit, this is pretty cool." You know, a, a good application for machine learning because there's nothing more repetitive than a pump jet going up and down all day, <laughs> and you take all your all your data points that you have, and you know, I think that's a great use case for the technology and then you know having those those partnerships like just announced with equinor is massive you know while it doesn't sound like that big of a deal it is just because it's technology that's starting to be adopted so really excited about that and to see where that goes and i agree with you where i think automation of uh, production lift could be heavily disrupted in the next several years and then also i think on the land and mineral side jake and i have talked about this in some previous podcasts i think that the land and mineral side is also a very low-hanging fruit it's all data i mean on the land, it, it, the land all, side so there's a there's a lot of competition there in it that is. space yeah it doesn't it, get much attention from my angle because i report for the engineers yeah by the time stuff gets to the engineers we're past the land phase yeah um, a little but, too little too upstream yeah for we you. were talking yeah. about people coming and photocopying records land records i mean that's you know so there's a company i, I believe they're based in dallas and and yeah, they'll say, well, digitize all your all your land stuff. And they call out a moving truck and they come and they pick up all your paper files. And then a week later, you get all that stuff back. Mm -hmm. But they've now digitized it and they go through for you and structure it to try to bring you into that modern age. So, so yeah. there's a lot of stuff happening there because... Because people know where the information is. And yeah. generally, I, well, I you, it's you, in you, decent shape. Yeah, yeah. you look at it. I mean, the, these courthouses, they house all the information. And then you have all the, all the records internally within the companies. And 
you know, it's just it's just big data. There's a ton of blockchain applications within that. So I see it as being a low hanging fruit. But yeah, you're right. That's a little little too upstream for the engineers. So well, and the one thing I'll, I'll add to this, where where we're starting to see a lot of progress, and this has probably been covered to death. But I mean, you know, we can't forget about what's happened in drilling. So mm-hmm. drilling's you know been a, we we saw all, almost all the drilling contractors just buy a software company within the last year and a half, I think. And as you know, large part of that's been going to reduce the dependency on directional drill- drillers, human directional drillers. Yeah. Yeah. So if you talk to enough people and you want to talk to talk about a job where traditionally this is like a very experienced driller and they come in and some people say, you know, they just kind of toggle a switch and hold a coffee, uh, <laughs> cup of coffee in the other hand. They're very expensive. And I mean, you look at MWD hand, I mean, out in the field, you call them movie watching dudes. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, you, there's experience that goes along with it, but it's not very labor intensive. Net- so. Netflix and drill. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but that, but that's the thing. I mean, that's, these, that's the first time I've heard that. I love that. <laughs> we need to make shirts. Yeah, right? it's You're going to move these guys into the office now. And yeah. so there's a number of companies who, you know, are building these or already have real time operation centers. And the near future, if it's not already happening for a few people, is you're going to have one directional driller overseeing five to 10 drilling projects if you have that many rigs. Yeah. And they won't be getting in the F-150 and driving out to the field yeah. for all, much longer. All, all remote work, you know, done from a uh, central location where you're managing several projects. Yeah, it's funny on that Netflix and drill. I love that. I was, we were out on one of our wells a couple of weeks ago replacing a pump and we had to wait on something. And I told Jake, I said, look, I'm about to show you how it's done out in the oil field and busted out the uh, the phone, put on a movie. And <laughs> that's, that's right. Just binge watch. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, Really interesting. And, um, you know, when we talk about like downhole technology, what's funny is anytime I start kind of spouting off on LinkedIn about the resistance to adoption of technology, I'm always thinking on terms of software and data, machine learning, things of that nature. But I'll always get so much uh, hate and resistance from a lot of field hands. Like, what are you talking about? You know, we've, we've been adopting technology for decades now, but all they think about is downhole technology. Yeah. And yeah, we've had a ton of innovation, especially in the last 10 years, drilling out these horizontal wells in uh, directional drilling. So yeah, there's been a, a ton of innovation when it comes to actually drilling a well and the tools that we use to do that. But it's, uh, you know, anytime I talk about resistance, I'm mainly referring to internal systems and processes within EMPs because EMPs are extremely inefficient. They're not making smart decisions a lot of the time. So that's that's what I'm I'm focused on. But it's kind of interesting to see how when people think of technology, they automatically revert to downhole technology instead of all the big data on the back end. Well, that's where we've seen, you know, prior to the digital explosion, that's where we saw so many advances with rotary steerables. I mean, there's still people that don't use that technology and, mm-hmm. and there's people that swear by it. And the same goes for micro seismic. And, and so one thing I've learned over the years is that there's a thousand philosophies in oil and gas and none of them are the right one. Um, so <laughs> it's, that's what makes the business kind of fun and dynamic is that we're not just following a blueprint. It's not, yeah. it's not cookie cutter as much as that term is, is used in, in oil and gas and engine engineers are built to engineer. So yeah, this is kind of unrelated, but you know, I remember going to a great paper session at OTC a couple of years ago, and one of the in- big engineering firms was talking about standardization for offshore and, and, you know, creating modules that, you know, could do different things. But, you know, you'd have your small, medium, and large. 
And somebody's like, well, this is great. You know, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't you building these modules? And it will just, you know, shave costs left and right and offshore. And he said, well, because you're engineers, you know. And, and the second we show this to you guys, you know, you start saying, well, I want this thing here. And I want that flange over on this side. So there's a lot of customization. And when you start coming out, if you translate this back to software, there's, you know, people, like I said, people are trained to, to run on processes. You come and you say, okay, well, this is how we're going to start doing our work orders now for, for the field. It's like, well, that's not the way. I've been doing it and my way is better. And, and so you get th- this internal change is some people conceive change as telling people you've been doing it the wrong way. Yeah. And I, I think that that approach tends to rub engineers the wrong way. You well, know, humans, humans natural tendency is we resist change. Like nobody, everybody gets comfortable doing what they've done for the last 20, 30 years. And we especially see this in oil and gas. Very much so where you have a bunch of, a bunch of hard headed people. And even if it's not presented as like, Hey, you're doing this wrong. You know, if you come in and you present it as like, Hey, this is going to make your job easier. It's still taken as you're telling them that they don't know what they're doing, that they don't know how to do their job. So it's just a big challenge and it, it does require some people to be open minded. And like, there's nothing better than when you find an engineer that has 30 years of experience and he's forward thinking and he's open to doing things a new way. I mean, it, it's just like a match made in heaven because you get to leverage their wisdom and experience, but they're also looking, they, they have the realization that we can improve the way that we do things. So, you know, you have to, you have to have some willingness from the people in the field to help. And we also need to keep in mind that like sort of on this, this, this topic of, of change management for the industry is that we're in the first generation, like this is the first round or the first inning, whatever we want to, whatever analogy we want to use here of the digital drive. And so not all the kinks have been worked out. Now there's a r- lot of great, you know, very valid reasons why that hasn't happened yet, but I mean, it's, it's early in the game. And so, mm-hmm. so you're, you're, you're testing and trialing products that don't have much of a track record. And it's going to be painful. And you're, <laughs> at the same time, you're saying, accept all of this, you know, like a adopt this. And so I think that we have to be realistic that, you know, we're, we keep talking about five or 10 years, what it's going to look like when these things mature out. And then people will believe, people will believe in results. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's why drilling is probably one of the best places to look for where, where is analytics and, and AI really working. Drilling is a great example. Artificial lift is becoming a great example. Mm-hmm. Reservoir description is, will be one day. And, there, and there's going to be 10 other areas, but it's, it's piecemeal. And people are chasing the highest value areas. So drilling, you know, but completions is interesting because there's not a lot going into complete or there's a lot of people trying to tackle it. It's been, and it's very hard because of the complexities involved with that. Yep. So once you start proving results and showing people, then, then you're going to get more buy-in. But at the same time, like I said, we, you know, without trying to be ageist on, on these issues, it's not just that the 30-year veteran engineer you know, hates new technology. You're giving him the first generation yeah. of a new technology. Yeah, we can't go in and shove these new technologies down their throat. And you know, there's going to be massive growing pains when we're trying to implement and just work out all the kinks. So yeah, that's definitely, you know, essentially... With the first wave, you're going to make those engineers' jobs harder because they're going to be, you know, working out all the kinks all the time. But it's so a fun. There's... It's a fun period of time to reflect on that because, as far as the frustrations go, and there's a lot of, you know, people like we talk about the hype cycle and and all that. You know, I think that that's a fun topic because you know eventually this will be a lot of this will be worked out. 
you know, and everybody living today, everybody going through the pains, especially that you guys are seeing as entrepreneurs and technologists, you know, we're all going to take for granted this, or we might take for granted this period of time where we're trying to work out the kinks. We're training machines, we're training computers to do what only humans can do. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a huge sure. task I and mean, it's phenomenal. It's, it's world changing. And yet we kind of complain about when it, when it breaks down and 10 years when this is all worked out a lot and all the new engineers coming to business, they're going to take it even, you're going to be the old guys and they're going to take for granted all of the pains that, that happen right now. So this is yeah. a very special time yep. when we see the potential, but it's still fuzzy and, and you have to crawl an inch along to get to the finish line. Whenever the finish line is there, nobody knows, but, but we shouldn't forget how transformative this period of time yeah, is. You got to enjoy the journey. And I think, yeah. you know, oil and gas is full of problem solvers. We find solutions to problems. So yeah, when you're in the day to day in the trenches, Sometimes it sucks, but we don't want to take this time for granted either because it's when all the, the fun actions taking place as well. Think about how we look at like the history of Silicon Valley and, and how there's like eight Steve Jobs movies. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't know if that's going to happen with oil and gas necessarily, but, but we're all mesmerized by the beginnings of these revolutions, these technological revolutions. Yeah. Well, where every day you wake up and you see a new headline of, of a big operator embracing AI or, or whatever, you know, whatever flavor drones of digital technology that it is, you're watching the beginning of a Silicon Valley type revolution in this business. Digital wildcatters. You're going to have yeah. the Rockefellers come out of this digital revolution, you know, that weren't making money necessarily directly from oil production, but we're making money from data and just opportunity. Yeah, look at, I mean, Amazon's got offices in Houston. Microsoft has offices in Houston. Google, you know, one day will probably have an office in Houston and it's all to go after oil and gas data. I mean, so a few years ago, that wasn't, that wasn't on anybody's radar, I think. I saw Amazon's having some AWS presentation here for oil and gas. So so they're definitely making a effort to move into the market. I think it was it was like Amazon and Microsoft just signed like hundreds of million dollars worth of contracts for AWS and Azure cloud hosting contracts with with some of the majors. Oh yeah, I mean so. Amazon for my gauge is is a, has maybe a little bit of the edge. I mean if you just look at the market in general, Amazon's Amazon's I think currently winning the uh, cloud market. What is oh, Amazon yeah. not winning? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, but again, like who would have thought? You know, the guy that I you know I get my toothpaste from is going to be selling <laughs> me you know giant supercomputing cloud platforms. So, but you know the the war is on for oil and gas data. Amazon's been aggressive and Microsoft's been pretty aggressive. Google's ramping it up. And this is just something, a, a paradigm shift where, you know, the tech companies are now the biggest companies in the world. There's only one oil company and the top 10, you know, S&P 500 list and it's Exxon. I think it was, there was a great chart put out a little while ago, 10 years ago, there was six or seven oil companies in the top 10. And now there's one. And, yeah. you know, the fangs are, have replaced them. So, so yeah, di- the digital tech's coming to Houston and Houston's going out to Silicon Valley and the trillion dollar uh, revenue pie that oil and gas owns every year. That's, you know, that's going to pull everybody in. And so the, oh. the revolution's just getting heated up right now. I like that quote. The war for oil and gas data is on. If that gets me fucking pumped. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of opportunity in oil and gas. And, you know, we have a lot of people from Silicon Valley reaching out and, you know, they understand that there's potential in oil and gas. So I think this is great for the startups within yeah. oil and gas, you know, whether you're Houston based, Austin based, Denver based, you know, wherever, wherever you might be, mm-hmm. because outside capital is starting to see that there's potential within oil and gas. So I think, you know, over the next several years, we're going to start seeing a lot of 
big moves coming into the industry. Yeah. I think Connor and I talk about this all the time. There's a there's a huge cultural difference between Silicon Valley and oil and gas and you know, they mix together like oil and water. And they just misunderstand each other, I think. And I think that's a big a big part of our mission, especially with this podcast and everything else that we do, is kind of obviously to, doing as well. yeah, to bridge that gap between those two. Yeah. Um, you know, the people in Silicon Valley maybe have a little bit of hubris and think that they can solve all the world's problems with, with certain types of technology without actually taking the time to actually understand how oil and gas actually operates right and then the oil and gas guys are like well you know screw these guys over here they don't think they know they don't know anything about oil and gas so why would we listen yeah, the, to them the two sides don't communicate very efficiently yeah and that, that's why you're starting to see more you know oil and gas companies put people in silicon valley so it's going to start with your and you know your sort of your venture-minded employees from the big operators and then you know but but Schlumberger and Baker Hughes, I believe, both have offices in, in the Palo Alto area. So the, the blending has just begun, but trying to understand, it takes years. And I'm not, again, I am not an engineer, but it takes, it took me years to appreciate and understand at a, you know, knee deep conceptual level, a lot of what goes into oil and gas. Yeah, you can't just throw that, put that on the backs of your typical Silicon Valley. Like you just don't, you know, understand the complexities. It's going to take them a while to get respect. They're going to, have to staff up, and at the same time, oil and gas is going to have to come to terms with what how Silicon Valley thinks. So I, I, I think that oil and gas is going to get more comfortable, or already is more comfortable with Silicon Valley and understands it better than Silicon Valley understands Houston. But it's only a matter of time, like I said. I mean, because if you know there's a will, there's a way. We're starting to see that, and. I, where you know we're even seeing you know some companies in Silicon Valley realize that they can't stay there either. So these startups, or whether they're in, in some you know somewhere north of or south of Silicon Valley, they have to come and have a presence in Houston too now. Mm-hmm. And I've even seen there's like one company from you know the Y Combinator, very you know well-known accelerator over there that they just you know up and moved the whole staff to Houston because they realized they had to be here. Had to be here. Yeah. yeah. That's what people ask me all the time. They're like, do you enjoy living in Houston? I'm like. Well, one, I love Houston, but I got to be here. <laughs> like every, I mean, the action happens here. And yeah. that's one interesting thing that we see too is, you know, Austin's becoming a hub for tech startups. And really, there's a lot of prominent oil and gas tech startups there as well because it's easier to find developers out there than it is in Houston. So it's a really interesting dynamic. Yeah. The developers here could go to an oil and gas company and, you know, you, you, make the oil and gas premium in, in terms of salary, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's very easy to go work at one of the majors and, you know, developers get paid, especially like, say, if you're like a, I don't know, mid-level developer, 150, 160, easily outside the industry and you come into oil and gas, you can push 200 easily, if not more, you know? And so it's like, well, why would I go, you know, make nothing for three years at a startup whenever I can just go and work in the corporate world? So we've seen definitely in Austin, it's, it's different. You know, the people, obviously Austin's weird first <laughs> off, but you know, they, they have people who are more entrepreneurial, not minded, not, not necessarily so swayed by high salaries like, we, like we've seen here. They want to be part of something. And yeah, they want to be a part of something. So yeah. Well, Trent, we got to rip, wrap it up, but it's been a great conversation. Yeah, well, people, thanks for having me. Where, where can people find yeah, you? Yeah, where can they find you? You can find me, just you know, use big data Google. So Google, <laughs> uh, SBE and JPT, and we're putting out uh, technology coverage every day and trying to stay on the bleeding edge of things. So like I said, SBE and JPT, Google that and you will find us. Okay, and you're on LinkedIn as well? I'm on as LinkedIn an individual. Uh, okay. and I'm on Twitter, but you can do a friend request or I'll follow, I'll follow you back if you if you want. So, uh, <laughs> follow for follow. Yeah, hit me up. Hit, hit me up. I'm open All right. business. So search them on 
on LinkedIn and Twitter, Trent Jacobs. Again, thank you for being on the show today, man. Great conversation. Hey, thanks, guys. Cool.